Amen. Well, it is a joy to be back with you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This morning, our study will confine us to verses 10 through 14. When Brandon asked me on Friday to, to teach in his stead as he's overcoming a sickness, you know, my heart leapt with joy for the fact to be back with you. It's only been two months, but it feels like ages. And so it is a joy to be back with you doing what I love most, that is reading the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, and applying the scriptures. And so hopefully in the Lord's will, this will be a blessing to you this morning. I've titled this morning's message, The Divine Cure from the Deadly Curse of the Law. Yes, I know that's a mouthful. I'm standing on the shoulders of our Puritan forebears. The divine cure from the deadly curse of the law. One of the most famous and notorious trials that has taken place in U.S. history occurred in the year 1995. It was in the year prior, in 1994, that millions of Americans tuned in to their television screens with anticipation as NFL star running back and murder suspect O.J. Simpson fled in the infamous white Bronco suspected of murder of his ex-wife and her friend. It was in the year 1995, the year following, that the trial officially commenced on January 24, with its anniversary just passing this last week. The attorneys that represented O.J. Simpson were equipped with the label, the Dream Team. As they gathered together the best defense attorneys and lawyers possible, they gave them the title, the Dream Team. In eight grueling months, with 150 witnesses taking the stand to testify, the verdict was officially issued on October 3, 1995. After much deliberating, the verdict came to be that O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of the murder of his ex-wife and her friend. While the dream team represented Simpson during that case in 1995 and the crimes that were alleged against him, in Galatians chapter three, Paul, the dream team in his own right, sets out to not defend a person, but to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The master defender of the faith that Paul was. In Galatians chapter three, Paul calls to the witness stand numerous witnesses to testify to the validity and the veracity of this biblical doctrine. In verses one through five, Paul appeals to the personal experience of the Galatians in their salvation. He asks a series of rhetorical questions that centers on the fact that the Galatian believers had been justified and had received the spirit not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. You can see that in verses two through five. And while personal experience does accord and correspond to the validity of this biblical doctrine, in verse six, Paul transitions to an even stronger argument as he appeals to the Old Testament scriptures. Specifically in verses six through nine, Paul appeals to the Old Testament patriarch Abraham, testifying that he was justified by faith alone. Look at verse six, Galatians three, verse six. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You remember the account in Genesis chapter 15. God has Abraham look out at the expanse of the heavens, at the stars and says, so shall your seed be. And Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him. It was like him as righteousness. 
subsequently in verses seven through nine, it is the spiritual seed of Abraham who received the blessing of Abraham. That is being declared righteous by God through faith alone. And it's now in verses 10 through 14 that we come to really the climax of Paul's argument here in the first 14 verses of chapter three. Now, since we're parachuting into the text in an isolated study, let me give us a head start with the context of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians' theme is justification by faith alone. As Paul sets out to defend that doctrine against the claims of the Judaizers who were coming in and distorting that pure, unadulterated gospel. Moreover, Paul explains in the first two chapters that the doctrine of justification alone was personally experienced by him, providing a personal and historical defense. In verse one of chapter one, Paul explains that the apostolic ministry that he had was not of his own doing. It was not of his own calling or initiative, but he received it from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Moreover, this biblical gospel that Paul proclaimed, the very one that the Judaizers distorted, was not through human ingenuity. It was not from human revelation, but rather Paul received it directly from Jesus Christ himself. Chapter one, verse 11. This gospel, this biblical gospel, is the gospel of justification by faith alone. And as we turn the page to chapter three, we witness a transition of the apostle Paul as he sets out to defend the doctrine of justification by faith, not on a personal account or a historical account, but by providing a doctrinal and a biblical analysis. And that is where we find ourselves in our study of sacred scripture this morning. While closely aligned with verses six through nine, Galatians three verses 10 through 14, Paul appeals not to the patriarch Abraham, but rather he appeals to the Old Testament law to signify and demonstrate that the only way that sinful man can be justified, the only way that guilty man can be justified and declared righteous before a holy God is through the sole instrumentality of faith alone. So how is it that Paul unfolds this argument to express this reality? Well, it's in verses 10 through 14 that Paul provides two overarching propositions that demonstrates that justification is by faith alone so that you would not look to your obedience to God's commands, but that you would solely cast the gaze of repentant faith to Christ and him alone. With that in mind, let's read our text for this morning. Follow along as I read Galatians chapter three, verses 10 through 14. These are the words of the apostle Paul under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he writes. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. The first overarching proposition that the apostle Paul deduces here is that the law brings a curse. 
the law brings a curse. And you can see this unfold in verses 10 through 12. And I want you to notice the antithesis, the the stark contrast that exists between verse 9, where Paul just left off, and verse 10. Verse 9, it is those who are of faith that are blessed with Abraham the believer. And in verse 10, it says, many as the works of the law who are under a curse. Paul transitions in verse 10 from expounding the blessing of justification that comes to Abraham's spiritual seed to the curse of divine condemnation that comes to all transgressors of God's law. Now, as Paul unfolds his argument in these verses, verses 10 through 12, he provides three reasons that prove that the law brings a curse. Three specific reasons of why the law brings a curse. And you'll notice as we work through these verses individually in these three reasons that Paul presents an affirmation and then he presents the evidence. He backs it up, grounds it in the Theopneustos scriptures, the Old Testament law. Let's look at the first reason together that the curse brings a law. We see it in verse 10. And the first reason is this, the law demands perfect obedience. The law demands perfect obedience. Look with me at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You can see clearly at the outset of verse 10 that Paul presents this affirmation of this reason, of this reality. So who is this group that Paul refers to as many as are of the works of the law? Well, I think if you hold an ESV in your lap, it further elucidates what Paul is saying here. The ESV and the NIV translate this as, as many as rely on the works of the law. You see, it is those who depend upon or cast their reliance upon obedience to the law for a right standing before God. It describes those who attempt to be counted as righteous upon the basis of their obedience. And I want you to notice the comprehensive nature of this statement. Paul says, as many as are of the works of the law. Not the Jews who are of the works of the law, but as many as are of the works of the law. This includes all peoples of all times and all epochs, including you and I today. And notice what Paul says in verse 10. It's as many as are of the works of the law that are under a curse. They're under a curse. Now, don't let this word conjure up imagery of sorcery and witchcraft of a Harry Potter sort, but understand what the biblical idea of a curse is. The curse in biblical terms is to be under the divine judgment of God as a consequence for human sin. It is the antithesis, it is the opposite of being under divine blessing, of having his face shine upon you. It alludes to divine condemnation. To be under a curse means to stand guilty before the bar of God's tribunal. Douglas Moo in his commentary describes this curse well when he says, to be under a curse is to be under God's judgment for failure to live up to his covenant requirements. 
It is to be under God's judgment for failure to live up to his covenant requirements. So Paul affirms that those who rely upon their law keeping for their justification, for their right standing before God are under a curse. But why? Why is it that the law brings a curse? Well, Paul presents the evidence here in the latter half of verse 10. You can see this evidence as he appeals to the Old Testament. He says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. There at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapters 27 through 28, the people of Israel are exhorted as they enter into the promised land to send a group of representatives to Mount Ebal and a group of representatives to Mount Gerizim, and they were to pronounce corresponding, echoing, refraining curses and blessings. And specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 15 through 26, there is an echoing refrain of 12 curses that are pronounced with the first 11 curses being specifically addressed towards particular sins. Sins such as idol worship, dishonoring father and mother, and sexual perversions among others. However, it is that final curse, that 12th and final curse from Deuteronomy 27, 26 that Paul quotes from here in Galatians chapter three. And it's a summary of all the curses, if you will. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 says, cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. It's a comprehensive summary statement. And Paul quotes from the Septuagint the Greek translation form of the Old Testament. That's why you might notice a little bit of a difference in wording from your English text to Deuteronomy. And notice the comprehensive nature of this statement. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Not cursed are those who get on the 10 o'clock news. Not cursed are those who do those outwardly egregious things. It's cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And this isn't just describing corporate or national obedience. I mean, this is individual. This is personal. Cursed. Being under the divine judgment of God is everyone who does not perfectly conform to all of the statutes, all of the regulations, all of the requirements of the law. This is the plight of man. And there's an embedded presupposition that exists in this quotation that we're all familiar with by experience, but also because it's the testimony of the entire scriptures from Genesis chapter three through Revelation chapter 22. And that presupposition is this. All mankind in every constituent of mankind does not perfectly do all things written in the law. This is the resounding refrain and testimony of the entire scriptures. 1 Kings 8, 46, there is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Probably a memory verse for you, Romans three twenty three. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law brings a curse upon all who do not abide by all things written within the law to practice them continually and constantly and perpetually. 
I mean, follow the logic of Paul's argument here. The law demands perfect obedience. The law brings a curse for those who do not perfectly obey. No one perfectly obeys the law. Therefore, all are under this curse. And all mankind is held without excuse. And that curse, that curse is the divine judgment of God that's necessitated against disobedience to his law. As the phrase all things in verse 10 signifies and makes abundantly clear, perfect obedience is what is required by the law. Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. It's an inseverable chain that if you break one, the whole thing comes cascading down. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And what this means for you and I is that we stand accursed under the law apart from Christ. Without a sponsor, without a surety, without the captain of the salvation that he has accomplished in our corner, every single one stands accursed under the law. We've all sinned. All have disobeyed God's word in our thoughts and our attitudes, our speech. We've committed sins of omission, that is not doing the things that are prescribed in the law. We've committed sins of commission, that is doing the things that are prohibited in the law. And what we rightfully deserve for our disobedience is God's curse. Spurgeon appealed, dare you sleep tonight under the curse? Will you awake tomorrow and go forth to your business under the curse? Can you spore and frolic and laugh under the curse? Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you today. It is so easy to go about the course of life without a secondary thought to the plight that befalls every man. It's so easy to leave these grounds today and go watch football or go do the numerous other things that might exist without a secondary thought to this reality. As we'll soon see, there's one remedy. There is one solution. There is one divine cure to the removal of this curse. And that is the blessed cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and his substitution for us. To tie this back into our overarching proposition, why does the law bring a curse? What is the reason that the law brings a curse? is because the law demands perfect obedience of which no one attains. But it's in verse 11 that Paul continues his argumentation and he provides a second reason that proves that the law brings a curse. And that second reason is this, the law cannot justify anyone. The law cannot justify anyone. 
Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. You can see again right there at the outset of verse 11, Paul provides an affirmation for us. No one is justified before the law is evident. The verb justified there in verse 11, it means to be acquitted of guilt and pronounced and treated as righteous. It is a forensic term that denotes a right standing before the judge. You know, thankfully, I graduated seminary. Now I get all this free time to read whatever books that I want. I say that sarcastically, but right now I'm enjoying A.W. Pink's book, The Doctrine of Justification. And I love what he says when he describes justification. He says, justification is the gracious act of God as judge in the high court of heaven by which he pronounces the elect and believing sinner to be freed from the penalty of the law, the curse, and fully restored unto divine favor. And the reason that no one can be pronounced righteous, no one can be justified by keeping the law is because no one perfectly obeys the law. The law cannot justify anyone. Again, I want you to see that Paul leaves no wiggle room here. No exception clauses. No one is justified by the law before God. And let me get personal. You and I are not the exception to that rule. And this is a truth that's not ambiguous. It's not obscure. It's not something that's covered up. Paul says it's evident. It is clear to mankind's perception, understanding, under illumination. It is clear because no one has kept the law. As Steve Lawson often remarks, if you listen to his Bible study, to miss this truth, you'd have to be reading your Bible upside down in the dark, using microscopic font, and you'd have to be blind. It's evident. It is plain to see. It's so evident that Paul reiterates and rehashes the same truth three times in an earlier verse in Galatians. Look back in Galatians chapter two, just on the other page of your Bible at verse 16. Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, there's one, but rather through faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, there's two, Why? Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It is evident. It is plain. It is clear to see. So why is it? Why is it that this affirmation that the law cannot justify anyone is so plain and evident? Well, Paul provides the evidence with that Old Testament quotation from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, because he says, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The grounds, the reason that no one is justified by the law before God is because the righteous man, the man that has been declared righteous by God through faith is to live by that faith. Whether it be Abraham, whether it be the prophet Habakkuk, whether it be you and I, no one ever will be justified or declared righteous before the tribunal of God apart from faith and faith in the definitive object of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And that's Paul's point in quoting Habakkuk 2, verse four. The reason that the law brings a curse is because the law cannot justify anyone. So we've learned so far, the reasons that the law brings a curse is because the law demands perfect obedience and because the law cannot justify anyone. But in verse 12, Paul provides another reason 
of why the law brings a curse. That third reason is this. The law and faith are incompatible. The law and faith are incompatible. If you don't know how to spell that, look it up later. Galatians 3 verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. Again, we see this affirmation right at the outset of verse 12. The law is not of faith. Faith and law are incompatible. They're mutually exclusive. The reason is because the two operate on different principles. The law is strictly focused on performance and doing, and faith is focused on trusting and believing. It would be like if you had a malignancy in your body and you go to a physician and he properly diagnoses you and then prescribes you with a medication regimen to suppress that malignancy. You would leave the doctor's office, you would go home, you would fill your prescription. But yet rather than taking those medications, you would take a scalpel or a knife at home and that you would manually remove that malignancy by yourself before any medication could take effect. You see, those two don't go hand in hand. Trusting the physician and his prescription for your dilemma versus taking matters into your own hands and cutting out the malignancy yourself. They're mutually exclusive, they're incompatible. In fact, one would leave you compromised and potentially mutilated. In the same way, the law and faith operate on different principles. Law versus faith, doing versus believing. It's like the miscibility of certain substances such as oil and water. You're familiar with this. Oil and water don't mix. They repel each other. They're incompatible and mutually exclusive. John Calvin describes this incompatibility well when he says, the law justifies him who fulfills all its commands. No one. Whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. As is Paul's custom, at the end of verse 12, he provides the evidence behind his affirmation. He grounds it in a quotation from Leviticus chapter 18, verse five. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. And what Paul is doing in quoting from Leviticus 18 here is signifying that the one who would seek to be justified by the law is to practice the statutes and the regulations and the requirements of the law constantly, perpetually, incessantly, over and over without fail. Thomas Schreiner highlights this well when he says, those who do what the law requires will live on the basis of their obedience. Law obedience then is contrary to faith since it is predicated on obeying instead of believing to obtain salvation, on performing what is required instead of trusting God's work in Christ. I mean, can't you see how foolish it was for the Judaizers to be coming in saying that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation? But you also need to undergo the rite of circumcision. You also need to compile on top of that obedience to the Mosaic Code. It's folly. 
It's foolishness to look to obedience to the law as a grounds of justification and for a right standing before God. Why? Paul's three reasons here. The law brings a curse. And as we've witnessed, everyone is under this curse because everyone does not obey perfectly the law's requirements. Now that every single one of us as Adam's seed is trapped under this curse, now that we see that there is no exception, there is no exemption save the one who was born of the virgin, the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of Adam's seed is encased and trapped under this curse. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there because he immediately flies to the cross. You might be inclined to cry out after this, these three indictments, how can this curse be removed? As we were saying earlier, how can this curse be broken? And to this hypothetical question, Paul offers a second proposition that demonstrates that justification is by faith alone. And that second overarching proposition that Paul provides us is that Christ redeems from the curse. We saw in verses 10 through 12, the law brings a curse. We'll see in verses 13 through 14 that Christ redeems from the curse. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now in these two verses, Paul unfolds this proposition with four highlighting features. Four features that create this airtight argument that Christ redeems from the curse. And the first one is seen in verse 13, which is the affirmation of Christ's redemption. The affirmation of Christ's redemption. Right there at the outset of verse 13, Paul says these words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's no conjunction There's no connecting word back to verse 12. Rather, the verse simply starts with Christ. And this emphasizes the person of Christ and the role that he plays in delivering entrapped sinners who are under this curse. The word redeemed, it means to secure the deliverance of a person and often was used to signify the buying of a slave from the bondage in the slave market. With that picture in mind, what Paul is saying is that Christ has purchased us from slavery to sin and the curse of the law that ensues, which stood hostile and antagonistic against us. It's like what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter two. We have forgiveness of sins through Christ. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile towards us. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. How is this so? How can this be? We see the second feature in verse 13, which is the means of Christ's redemption. 
the means of Christ's redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. The word for curse is the same word that's used repetitively throughout these verses. And it describes the judicial action of God as a consequence for human sin. And I want you to notice in verse 13, the language of substitution that exists. You see, Christ was not cursed in the same manner that lawbreakers are cursed. Those who disobey the law are rightfully cursed. Why? Because verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. Christ was cursed as he stood in our stead. Christ was cursed as an act of vicarious obedience and redemption. You see, Christ was the one who perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He was the one who, the author of Hebrews says, was tempted in every way that we were, save sin. He's the one who Peter says, in him there was no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The one that bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's the one who the apostle John says came to deal away with sin, but yet in him there was no sin. Christ was cursed on our behalf, in our stead, in our place. And Paul describes this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Again, probably a memory verse that you have. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in the surety, in the substitute, in the righteous servant. He died and was crucified. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might receive his righteousness through faith and be justified before God. This is the only means of justification. Christ became a curse for us. It comes through the substitutionary atonement accomplished by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this directly to bear upon your heart and your conscience this morning. But can it be said of you that he died in your place? Can it be said of you that he became a curse on your behalf? Can it be said of you that he hung and bled on Calvary's cross, suffering under the just weight of the wrath of Almighty God in your place? Have you looked upon him with the eyes of repentant faith as the one who was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness? Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me all the ends of the earth, look to me and be saved. Has the curse been removed in your stead? Has it been broken? Or right now where you sit this morning, do you still remain under the curse?
why would you leave here today neglecting your soul? Why would you walk out of here today and engage in the passing pleasures of sin without regard for your entire eternity? Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that I can still in you, If there's one thing that I can leave you with that is a greater appreciation, a greater love, a greater adoration for the salvation that has been secured on your behalf and for the one who paid the price for it. That you would taste the sweetness of the redemption that has been accomplished by Christ how sweet that redemption. The curse has been removed. The wrath of God that our sins justly warrant has been placated and satisfied. That's my prayer for you today. is that you would glory in the beautiful Savior who died on your behalf. That as Paul says later in Galatians 6, 4, I have no other bow save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was crucified for me and I with him, that he loved me and gave himself up for me, that he took the curse in my place. I fret for your soul if you neglect so great a salvation. Paul continues in verse 13. And as has been his custom throughout this text, he provides the evidence of Christ's redemption. The evidence of Christ's redemption, grounding his affirmations within the veracity of the scriptures. Verse 13, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 21 and provides the basis and the evidence that Christ became a a curse to secure our redemption. It was in the Old Testament that the criminal who violated the requirements of the Mosaic law and was thus worthy of death, he would be put to death and then affixed upon a wooden post as a demonstration, as a visible manifestation that that person was under the curse of God, under his just judgment for violating his law. And don't be confused here. MacArthur is helpful when he says, it was not that a person became cursed by being hanged on a tree, but that he was hanged on a tree because he was cursed. Jesus did not become a curse because he was crucified, but was crucified because he was cursed and taking the full weight of sin upon himself. Not only does Paul affirm Christ's redemption, not only does he provide the means of Christ's redemption, and not only does he provide the evidence that bases this redemption, but he also in verse 14 provides the purpose of Christ's redemption. Verse 14 is the purpose of Christ's redemption. And really this purpose is twofold. You can see it there if you look in your Bible in verse 14, 
with the two conjunctions, in order that and so that. The purpose of Christ's redemption from the cursed is so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What is that blessing? Look back at verses eight through nine. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaim the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The blessing of Abraham is that his believing seed would be declared righteous as a, on the instrumentality of faith. In a similar vein, the second purpose that we see in verse 14 is so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. It is at the point of justification, at the point of conversion, when the third person of the triune God had comes and takes residence within the life of the believing sinner and dwells the believer. The promised spirit comes and makes his abode within those who place their faith in Christ. And this purpose statement of verse 14, it really ties all of the themes that Paul has been weaving together in these first 14 verses into a a nice package, if you will, with a bow on top. You can see in verses one through five, the promise of the spirit comes by faith. Verses six through nine, the blessing of Abraham comes by faith. Well, how is the promise of the spirit, how is the blessing of Abraham, that being declared righteous before God, how is that secured? How is that procured for the believer? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In these verses, Paul provides an airtight argument that demonstrates that justification is by faith alone. That there is one divine cure for the deadly curse of the law. It's in these verses that Paul calls the Old Testament to the witness stand to demonstrate that the cure has been broken, that Christ has redeemed those for whom he came from the curse. And as we close this morning, I wanna provide you with three theological lessons that need to be ingrained in your mind and indelibly marked upon your heart. And the first lesson is this. All are under the curse of divine judgment for disobedience to the law. All are under the divine curse of judgment for disobedience to the law. That includes you, and that includes me, apart from our surety, apart from Jesus Christ. That leads us to a second important theological lesson. And that is the only cure from the curse of the law is redemption found in Christ. The only cure, the exclusive cure and remedy from the curse of the law is found through the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. Because we have all sinned, we are all under the curse of divine judgment. Apart from the one who perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf and satisfied the wrath of God against our disobedience. And it's because those two lessons are true that the third lesson holds weight. And that is this, that the only means of justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. You all know this, you go to this church, 
but subtly in your lives, there are times when you deny this doctrine. How do I know? Because I do the same thing. When you sin, when you sin, maybe you go back to an old habit. What's your response? Is it, well, my, my church attendance has been pretty consistent. Um, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I just slipped up this one time. Is it, is, is your answers in the first person? Because I. Or is your answer solely found as you come to God in repentance? I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is because of these great truths that all boasting is excluded and all praise is owed to God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious text. We thank you for the glorious reality that could only be conceived in the infinite mind of eternal wisdom. That the second person of the Godhead would be born under the law. So he might redeem those who are under the law. How glorious a salvation. How perfect a redemption. Oh God, set our hearts ablaze with love and adoration and affection and praise to our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, imprint the truths of this passage upon our hearts and our minds. Would there never be a moment that we neglect to think about these great realities? That we are hopeless and helpless apart from our surety, our sponsor, the captain of our salvation, the reigning, ruling, soon returning King of Kings, the blessed one, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be glorified now in Jesus' name, amen.